0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And I'm so pleased this week to have Helen Roy on. Um, Helen Roy is one of my favorite writers on the subjects of family, femininity, and sex, among others. Um, she's a contributing editor to Claremont Institute's The American Mind, and she hosts a podcast called Girl Boss Interrupted. Um, she also has a new newsletter for New Founding called American Woman. So, welcome, Helen. Thank you for having me. So, I wanted to to start us off with sort of the question of your podcast, which is um you know sort of beating up on the girl boss archetype <laughs> right um and and it almost feels a little bit um like mean at this point because yeah. it seems like the girl boss is very uh cringy and unpopular. she's a
1: but, bit of a dead horse,
0: yes <laughs> I, I'm wondering you know how it went from. Uh, a sort of cultural phenomenon to a kind of insult, um, how that happened and then what it means now that this archetype, like what, what killed this archetype, what killed the the, the girl boss and what does it mean that it seems like beyond just our folks on the right, this is now an insult girl boss.
1: Yes. Yes. That's a great question. Well, I think that honestly, some of it is like intergenerational violence. Uh, Gen Z is pretty um intent on differentiating themselves from millennials who are cringe um and it's there it's sort of their ascendancy now they're they are the youth they are they're sort of dictating the culture because that's how our culture works um that the youngest and sexiest among us <laughs> get to say what's what which you know i'm not upset about because i think it's something that like it's, it's a mean that deserves to just uh, probably be beaten down and at at the very least forgotten. Um, but there were, there were material and practical, uh, reasons why this sort of thing fell apart too. Um, so I think, I think, you know, the girl boss thing, um, you could even say it started in like the mid seventies when, uh, women in the workforce went from just below, they, 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 uh, Cross the threshold from forty nine to fifty percent, um, and and that was really when that that uh, wave of feminism that was focused on on not just um, being present in the career but sort of being like a a boss and and, and achieving status um, in in the working world uh, was ascendant. Um, but it really like th- those sort of ideas were marinating for a while. And then I think, I think in the nineties, especially when er, the eighties and the nineties, really, um, well, in the eighties, you see it too. with like the, the fashion, the, the padded shoulders <laughs> and all that. But, uh, anyway, I think, I think people who grew up in the eighties and nineties, women, especially, um, at that point it had, it had really, uh, this sort of particular brand of feminism had had subsumed all aspects of life. And it became like an, uh, a narrative for raising children. And so this cohort of women born in the eighties and nineties millennials uh, were saturated in this like girl power thing. And, um, and then they, they grew up believing this wholeheartedly and, and originally, the self-identification, the hashtag girl boss thing in the early days of Instagram stuck and uh, made sense because it was millennials time and they were defining the trends. But um, over time, I think millennials aged into a situation where um, they were, they became pretty exhausted by, by, uh, by living by that life script um because it was so careerist and so insistent on equality with men that it 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 uh, insisted on behaviors that were the same as male behaviors and uh, just I think acting in a way that wasn't lined up with female nature I uh, just it, it, anybody will do it, that happens to anybody right if you're if you're not sort of behaving in a way that's true um, and aligned and sort of properly oriented, it just falls apart because uh, that's how the natural law works. So I think that that's kind of what happened is like millennials grew up and as they were sort of aging out of cultural relevancy, they were simultaneously losing steam personally. And so, so that's sort of where we are. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really true, especially during the pandemic. And we'll get to that. But I, I this always makes me think of um, a, a truly uh, emblematic anecdote, um, actually just a little bit older, I think, because this is from Sex and the City, but Sex and the City is largely about Gen X, right? Um, and where, where the girls in Sex and the City are, are uh, complaining about girls in their 20s, right, from the perspective of being in their mid-30s. Um, and I can't remember which one says to which, but one of them is like, these girls in their 20s, they think they're it. And the other one says, yeah, don't they know that we're still it? <laughs> and I, I think that that like really encaptures this like um, millennial sort of desperation for what you call like the sort of sex appeal of being the, the youthful generation. Millennials are not adjusting well to not being it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do fear that our cultural dominance actually will continue because simply the, the generation is so huge in the same way that boomers – I mean, there was there was that very clear cultural handoff moment at the Super Bowl last year, right? Where um, for the first time, the halftime show it was geared explicitly at nostalgia for millennials. Um, you know, boomers had such an outside impact on pop culture and on our culture more generally. I think because they were the biggest generation to date. Well, we're bigger mm-hmm. than they are, um, so I'm not I'm I, mo- the world may validate the marketing world out of pure capitalist greed may validate millennials delusions that they're still it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, the, the deeper question here would be, um, cause you said, and I didn't think it's so true that, uh, sort of the, especially the elder cohort of millennials, um, feels like they're running out of steam with all the things that they were once, uh, very dedicated to not just the girl bossing thing, but the quote unquote changing the world. So many of these sort of millennial tropes or generational tropes, um, I think a lot of those did kind of die an unnatural death very quickly during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Where, um, people were obviously a lot of people working from home, very, very isolating. Um, some people leaned into work and they were working 16 hour days because there was nothing else to do. But now we have this phenomenon of burnout on the, on the flip side of that, you know, other people probably looking at their work and saying, is, is this it? Like without, going out for brunch or, or um, seeing my friends at work or, like, having the, the sort of distraction um, around this life fundamentally made it difficult for people not to see it for the sort of emptiness that, that came with that kind of life. And here I'm thinking of that famous cover, right? Um, was it, like, a New Yorker cover or whatever with the girl mm-hmm. on the Zoom date with the cocktail and then she's got, like, pills on the ground and stuff everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, was it the pandemic that killed off finally, th- this this archetype, because it just couldn't survive, the, the kind of promises of that couldn't survive the, the loneliness of being locked in your house?
1: Did coronavirus kill the b- girl boss is the question. Yes. I think that it was the nail in the coffin for all of the reasons that you've already hinted at. Um, I think that, um, you know, I had a guest on my podcast. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. She wrote a book called *The Sexual State*, about how um, how uh, the government and media sort of hold up these artificial and you know contra nature uh, sexual mores because they have to because in it, because things would fall apart much more quickly if there if there weren't um, a state to enforce certain things and propaganda to sort of keep the world wheels turning. So um, I think that that's true for a lot of memes. And there are a lot of unnatural memes that require a certain structure in order to stay alive. And I think that coronavirus really disrupted a lot of those structures and um, laid bare the truth of various institutions when all the, not just the bells and whistles, but like the Gosh, yeah, I say structure. I would say, um, man, how, how would I describe that? Uh, just the, the formality, uh, was taken away. Like all, all you have left is the, is the sort of raw substance and you can sort of see it for what it is. Um, so I think that that, that sort of, that happened for a lot of millennial women. Um, I would say definitely for the ones who had made their career like their primary identity. Um, they sort of were forced to take a step back and all of a sudden it's like this all consuming loneliness and uh, a real like loss of identity um, for women then who have children who it's like a slightly different thing. I think that a lot of women who have children who previously would have just sort of schlepped their kids to daycare and uh, worked. And there was, that was sort of an invisible, like the the domestic work of raising children was just this invisible thing that was outsourced um, when that was no longer a thing and they were, you know, interacting with their kids in a, in a you know, more intimate way, I guess. Um, I think that that did one of two things really. I think that um, that either revealed to women like, well, you know, how, just how much they were missing out on by not being with their children. And it made them sad and made them reevaluate and want to sort of turn, turn inward toward, toward turn, turn, turn toward the home and, um, be more present or it, it really was debilitating and they were stretched too thin and they couldn't get out of the fa- house again fast enough. And, you know, the, I guess the, the truth of that whole situation didn't completely make itself clear or at least wasn't motivating to enough to inspire change. But anyway, so there are a couple of different reactions, but, uh, But in short, I I do agree with you. I think that the pandemic was the nail in the coffin for for that meme and for, you know, the public school meme and a lot of other things. So,
0: yeah, I guess as you're talking, I'm wondering whether because we talk a lot about and by we, I mean, people on the right, people who are especially, I think, women engaged on these kind of questions of, of sort of society and sex um, we tend to focus a lot on the ideological, right? You were talking that the propaganda, the state supports that you're talking about and how we can rearrange some of those things um, maybe to not, not make life obviously um, smooth sailing or perfect, but to maybe uh, undo some of the harmful incentives that have been put in place. But how much of this is going the other way around? Um, in other words, how much of this is cope for uh the things that we now lack, right? Um I've had Mary Ebersat on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have as well, right? Yeah. Um Amazing. H- how much how much of this ideology is necessary, is a necessary rationalization for women who just don't have the same opportunities for things that actually statistically do make women uh, more fulfilled and happy because of either economic factors or family breakdown uh, of their own parents or the boomer generation. I mean, how, I guess, how, what percentage of this is actively propagandized or um, is, is even forgetting about propaganda is just an actual ideology that people are governing their lives with. And how much of it is just, um, is just cope. It's backwards cope for the reality that you're describing people facing in this pandemic, which is that, you know, people are, people are
1: lonely. Oh, that is such a, that is such a good point. Um, it's hard to say, it's sort of a chicken and an egg thing as are so many cultural things. It's sort of hard to pinpoint what, which domino was the first one to fall. Um, you know, was, was, was the, uh, girl bossification of the American woman, what led to loneliness is where is, what is loneliness what led to the girl bossification of the American woman, that honestly, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I think that it, it, I think many things can be true at once and, um, and these things do sort of feed each other. So, so yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I I think that there's this considerable amount of cope and, um, and it's, it's, I don't even, I don't even, so as much as I sort of beat up on the meme, I don't like to beat up on individual women. And, I think that most people are really just doing the best with the information that they have. And, um, and so I'm, I'm more critical of like institutions, of propaganda. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. If people are coping uh, through this, I would say, like through, through with careerism, um in the same way that if you were coping with, I don't know, alcoholism, obviously they're not the same thing, right? Like one is way more damaging. <laughs> but um I'm not
0: sure which, actually. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I would just I would just I think it's um I think it's time that women especially took a long look in the mirror. Um we need to contend with our legacy as women, um, and the ways that our behavior, even if even if we it's something that makes us uh, feel good or feel confident or feel empowered um, in the moment, sets a precedent precedent for for future generations um, to, to not have as many options. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think you're pointing to the fact that that there isn't really a neutral message that can be um, sort of wrangled from this society is always going to have some kind of default about the good life. And particularly as in in the context of this conversation is going to have a default about what the good life looks like for a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And our societal default is very, very much in the girl boss direction still as, as sort of cringy as the meme has become. um, It's also, you know, even for Gen Z and for the generation after that, I don't see any indication, for example, that um, it's going to be culturally acceptable for smart and ambitious young women um, to skip college, have a family and come back potentially to some kind of career later in life. I'm not seeing those uh, kind of avenues, open up in any really fundamentally different way than when we were 16. Um, Yes. So true. So I I don't know. I mean, I I guess I I do wonder what will happen when the consequences of this become fully clear. I mean, we had the pandemic as kind of a preview, but millennial women are going to be the, Lowest percentage married and having children. Um, I think close to fifty percent of of millennial women will probably never marry and have children. Statistically, mm-hmm. um, what what sort of how society reacts to that, whether it's seen as something to justify or as a, ca- a cautionary tale, um, I still don't know. But I'm, I'm I'm curious what kind of feedback you've gotten, especially since you do write about these subjects so often, um, particularly from women who are young than us, if, if they they think that uh, this kind of millennial introspection, this, um, in, in the best case, kind of holding people, holding themselves out as cautionary tales and saying, you know, look, this mm-hmm. didn't really work out for me. This didn't really make me happy. Um, do you see that having an impact or, or do you see us being uh, sort of unwise older sisters?
1: <laughs> well, mm, great question. So, To one of your earlier points, I just want to emphasize and agree with that because it was a good one. Um, the Gen Z criticism of millennials for the most part for the, of the girl boss thing is aesthetic. It's purely, it's the aesthetic is cringe, but the philosophy, they, it's not the critique is not to, to the level of philosophy. And you know this because Gen Z, uh, women are, um, just as, if not more, um, demeaning toward mothers and motherhood than their unwise older sisters. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, uh, and sorry, what, and your second question was, do you think that is, is there going to be a real change here? Is there a change in the youth or do you, uh, okay. So I think that to the extent that there, that that uh, culture is shifting. It's going to be a very radicalized minority who responds, and over a long enough timeline, those people will simply outbreed the ones who are more nihilistic. But I don't even know if we'll ever live to see that. Um. So I don't know. I don't know about mass culture. I think that as far as the masses go we might be a little too far gone um, i don't think there's ever been uh, a civilization that survived the sort of tendencies <laughs> that are our, ours is is um, falling into currently but i think that i think that there there are enough people who who are going to react strongly enough to sort of Build build out a little balkanized enclave for themselves, and uh, the future will be interesting. Interesting times, probably hard too.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose every 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 future is hard, and every past is hard. But um, you know, I, I guess uh, I'm wondering if if the reaction to your work in particular, if you do get mm. um, a reaction from younger women or from um, women you're, you're, I'm assuming you're a millennial. I, I don't know why I assumed that, but
1: well, uh, I'm kind of on the, I don't know. I was born in 1995, which is, I, I mean, I'm married to a millennial I'm probably spiritually more of a millennial, but I sort of have a foot in the next generation. It depends on when you think that one starts to be honest. I think a more accurate date for Gen Z's beginning is like somewhere like 97, 98. Um, so I'm a bit of a cusper, but I, I, am not really sure. But anyway,
0: you know, I'm, I'm in the fat part part of the millennial curve it was, um
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it, it's yeah it, it's funny because I actually I sort of skew several years younger it didn't matter in my case it just makes me like a younger millennial just because I grew up in Silicon Valley um mm-hmm. and a lot of those sort of internet friends hit earlier uh and so I, I often find that my sort of cultural or or reference points about a lot of these things skew to somebody who's about five years younger than me um yeah. because of like we had iPods first, and we had, um, you know, like that's, a lot of these these sort of uh, phenomena. Um, I was on. I don't really remember a time when I wasn't writing my book reports based on Google searches. I mean, I don't think it was even Google then; it was like Netscape or, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but like based on internet research. Um, but but in but in any case, <laughs> regardless of the sort of battle of the generations, but I I, I do believe that generational quote unquote like stereotypes are a real thing they reflect Mm -hmm. something um Mm -hmm. which obviously there are plenty of individual exceptions and there are plenty of people who are not um stereotypical of their generation but i mean for example one of one of the things i always found really unfair was the the stereotype um applied to millennials and millennials were lazy um i really don't think that one was ever true i I really think that was boomers looking at their younger employees who were doing things related to computers and thinking Mm -hmm. they just sit there on the computers all day um that one has never been kind of true. I, in fact, I see the opposite, and especially in the, the archetype that you're talking about—that um, millennials never stop moving. They're they're kind of corporately ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of millennials fundamentally as kind of the good kids, but they learned as the good kids who followed what their parents said. But what their parents said were was sort of all of the, the worst of the um, the cultural revolution and especially the sexual revolution of the boomers. Um, yeah. But I don't know that. Sorry, I didn't mean to, like, get off track and start uh,
1: no, defining
0: okay. the lines between Gen Z and Gen
1: It's such an interesting topic, <laughs> especially now because it's become, um, they've become, I feel like generations have become identity groups in in a, in a unique way, uh, whereas before they would have just sort of been in the the background of your life, I guess. But they, they've really become... A, a, you know, kind of to Mary Everstadt's point, like it's a new f- way of identifying, it's like a new form of identity politics almost.
0: Another uh, identity that we can put on TikTok and Twitter. Right, uh, right.
1: And but- astrology too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's one thing I've never been able to stand. I, I really have a hard time taking it seriously because it usually comes from the same people who say uh, things like, why would you read the Bible? Because it's, uh? why would you read what your sky fairy said in a bronze age book or or whatever it is? Um, and you have such a surface level understanding of, of 2000 year old religions, but they're like, oh, the stars predict my life. It's just, it's very, <laughs> it's always been particularly difficult for me to like, <laughs> to, yeah. to not laugh into their faces when they take it seriously. Anyway, um, but I, I, you did bring up about sort of this corporatism angle um, and you write about that and speak about that. As well. Um, and I'm wondering what you think the relationship between capitalism and this kind of female empowerment is, right? You kind of tracked it from the 70s into the 80s into the 90s, girl power era, um, and then now into the 2000s with girl bossing, and now kind of an aesthetic critique, at least. Um, of that. uh, We'll see about the the deeper critique. And I think you're probably right that it'll only be a small minority of of people who actually take the philosophical critique seriously. But, you know, what's what's the relationship between essentially corporate culture and Mm -hmm. the girl boss archetype?
1: Great question. So, you know what, I think that, um, I think that it's, it's, there's a third player here, which is secularization or at least the, uh, removal of, um, of, 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 uh, God and family as the sort of center. God is the, as the focal point of a society and the family as a sort of like, uh, um, most basic political unit. I think that that, that changing and uh, their uh, godlessness, and then also um, the individual becoming the sort of prioritized, most basic, the atomized individual becoming like the center of, of our political life. I think that is what sort of unleashed capitalism um, in a way that uh, was just sort of all-consuming, so that uh, corporations felt free to um, seek seek more labor to cheapen labor uh, because line go up sort of mentality, um, and that, that was sort of a mid, that was beginning in the mid-century, sort of a post-war uh, mentality. Um, I am not I am not an anti-capitalist. I think that free markets are great. Um but I believe that they must be restrained by a properly ordered conception of the human person sub- subject to uh the creator and um and as a member of a living community. Um so I think that I think that a big part of the feminist story has been uh, this unleashing of the corporate world to, to, uh, I don't know, break, break up families to, to, to make, make essentials very expensive. I mean, I know that the corporations didn't say like, Oh, we're going to make, we're going to make houses expensive today, but you know, like the way it's just, it's just a domino that, fell when when we uh, invited women into the workplace, killing the family wage, you know, that becomes the two income trap, which becomes like unaffordable housing now. So it's, that's sort of how I feel about it. Um, I don't know, I don't take, there. there are a lot of people on the right now who are, I think, critical of capitalism, but I think that it's important to be very specific about what kind of things you're talking about there. It's just too broad a brush.
0: Yeah. I, I'm probably with you. Um, I'm I'm still definitely a capitalist. I, um, I think the free market is an excellent economic system. I think what we're really pointing to is the fact that it's, that there are spheres of life that are Mm -hmm. non-economic where maximizing capitalism is very, very good at maximizing, um, material prosperity. Uh, but that is not the only kind of prosperity. I think that's what maybe from the from the sort of agnostic atheist perspective versus your Catholic perspective, that's what you're pointing to about correctly understanding the human person. I think what you're pointing to there is probably there are goods other than the material. Right. And at those goods, capitalism is particularly bad because it's so effective, right? It's it's capitalism is a great mechanism for giving people what they want and what they'll pay for. Um, And the problem is, you know, a lot of things that people want aren't good for them
1: (laughs) and aren't good for
0: society. And that's not, that's not a flaw we're going to correct in human nature, right? It's not um, in, in the same way that the Soviets believe they could build a new, you know, sort of altruistic man who wasn't motivated by um, self-interest and therefore they could do away with an economic system based on self-interest. It's, it's almost the same critique to me or a similar or a hand-in-hand critique to say that, yeah, because man is self-interested and because man often wants things that are not good for him um, or her in this case, that, you know, you, 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 capitalism cannot provide the kind of moral um, structures in a society that it's being relied on to provide, I think, in the absence of what you're saying, in the absence of other structures. Um, But that doesn't mean that I don't like capitalism or that I I think that we we need to switch. And in fact, oftentimes, and this is is where I, I push back against some of the dissonant, right, folks, like, it's not at all clear to me that a more socialistic system removes some of those barriers. It seems to me a lot of the atomization is coming from prosperity. And in that sense, Capitalism is creating the prosperity, therefore it's creating some of this atomization, but socialistic programs can create that too, right? What is social Mm -hmm. security other than a reason, one fewer reason that you need to have children, for example, because the public guarantees your old age. Um, It used to be (laughs) that before this kind of welfare uh, net, if you didn't have children and you didn't have your family didn't have children and everybody kind of made the decision not to invest in the future in that way. Then when you couldn't physically work anymore, you were out of luck. Um, so there are ways in which the socialistic society absolutely also empowers a certain type of atomization. Um, I guess what, 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 uh, what, what else about this sphere is going away? Because it, it seems to me that a lot of your remarks are pointing towards a kind of a hole in our society uh, for the non-material, as we just discussed I mean, the the falling away of women into the workforce, and, and I'm describing it that way, because they're falling away from something. And mm. it's not only within their private family lives, it's also in a sort of public or political way. Um, are we looking at essentially the death of the, the private sphere or the domestic sphere, whatever you want, however you would like to define that? Actually, that's, that's itself is a good question, right? Like, yeah. What what yeah. do you think is the sphere that is non-material and what has in the past what have women's roles been in maintaining that and how can we sort of um create a society in which there is such a thing as a domestic or private sphere in in the capital P political sense?
1: Uh y- Great point. And actually, I was thinking about this today because Yoram had tweeted something about how so many of the um, Enlightenment rationalist thinkers were single men who never had children, and um, this sort of uh, this is now the the sort of materialist ideology that that dominates our world, right? And and I mean, even Adam Smith's mother cooked his meals for most of his life. That's a form of labor that can't be quantified. Um, I mean, not, it's because it's unpaid, but it's important and we wouldn't have the wealth of nations if, uh, if Lady Margaret hadn't, uh, hadn't provided that for him. So I guess to answer your question, I think the domestic sphere is falling apart and people running away f- or pr- people are running away from it, because not because it's unpaid, but because we cannot recognize um, unpaid labor and unquantifiable, immeasurable acts of service we can't uh, recognize those things as having dignity and in- inherently dignified, inherently honorable um, because, because we have this like rationalist material brain and, you know, capitalism and communism are just two sides of that coin. It's, it's, it's whether, you know, you, you want to maximize it individually or share it with everybody, which was you know, that's their stated aims, so but let's be real about the communists. No, but um, anyway, so, yeah, so I think that the, the, fa- what are we falling away from? We're falling away from a family life, um, because we no, no longer have the vocabulary, the mindset, uh, the sort of cultural heritage, the impulse to, uh, to recognize all of the, to recognize really love <laughs> as an acts of love as having a status as be as being, as being things worthy of status, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah. And there, there are few creatures on earth more status conscious than women. Um, and I don't actually mean that as an insult to women at all. Um, I think it serves a valid purpose, um, biological purpose, but you're right that, you know, it, it, it's always going to be hard to ask women to do things that don't confer a certain amount of social status. Um, but how how do you rebuild that kind of impulse? I mean, is it even possible to rebuild that kind of impulse in a self-aware way or or is it all kind of a doomed LARP, I guess? Um, if, if once you lose that instinctual kind of um, impulse towards those things. Right.
1: What well, happens
0: What happens to uh, what happens to ersatz women of our generation?
1: I think that it's I think part of the reason why Jordan Peterson was so powerful and um, affected so many people is because he for the first time in a long time started pointing to archetypes um, started pointing to like mythic, deep, uh, things of like deep psychological significance that are in myths and, and sort of connecting those dots for people, you know? And, and the, the, the truth in that and the brilliance in that is, is because people need these stories to make sense of their lives. Um, I think we re, we re dignify that role. By holding up an archetype of woman that is, uh, you know, worthy of love, respect, and admiration, and and seeing her in the women that we know, and choosing to to sort of recognize like an archetype of a good woman and and emulate an archetype of a good woman. So, in this is the only. Place I personally have been able to recognize, like a a real revivification of of the domestic sort of realm, is in my um, is in my Catholic uh, friend friend circles, you know, because we have that archetype in Mary, uh, and it's a, it's a pretty specifically Catholic thing. I think uh, there are a lot of Protestants who kind of want to. Uh, Diminish or disregard that role as far she's, you know, she's just another woman. But, you know, Catholics are very into Mary. <laughs> we love Mary. <laughs> um, but it's actually a very effective social tool because she dignifies women, um, in, in a sort of like broad societal psychological level. Um, and I think that's kind of what it takes. I, I think that, um, because, you know, right now in the broader society, the more easily recognizable, easily digestible, frequently consumed image of woman is like a like a woman in a porno. Um, I don't know. I, I think it has to do something with that, something to do with with uh, storytelling, with with these like myths and history and and. um. I, by the way, I'm not saying Mary was mythological. Okay, that's let me just like back that up. That's heretical. That's not what I said, but um, but I, I hope you understand what I'm saying. But uh, yeah,
0: I understand that you've come down on on one side of the Madonna versus horror complex here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you picked a team. Um, no, but I, I could imagine there being multiple. Archetypes, right? Um, oh, for sure. But, I mean, with Mary Magdalene
1: too.
0: Um, but but still having to do with, I guess, the cultivation of traditional feminine virtues as distinct from masculine ones. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that's a really interesting answer, actually, and I think that's probably more true in what I observe or how, especially for women. Like, and I actually just don't know about men because I'm not one. Um, in this regard but I know for myself like I'm very uh, influenced by especially like aesthetic archetypes or um, I feel like I can bear just about anything in life as long as I have a sort of model in my head of what that would mean mean um, I think there is that impulse of mimetic sort of slotting yourself in, um, to, to a particular, even if it doesn't fully describe every aspect of yourself, but that's kind of not the point, right? That's, that would be the the sort of millennial narcissistic answer to it. Is, oh, I, I don't see myself represented in this. Um, but instead it's something to strive towards. Um, that gives, gives a sort of dignity to something that may not be, um, sort of immediately gratifying or, uh, as Alex Cushita always says, tickle your limbic system.
1: Um, <laughs> So good. (laughs) I love Uh, all of her little aphorisms. They're so good. She's like just the best at that. I mean, gosh.
0: Um, I guess. Uh, speaking of the Madonna horror complex. Um, what what is what is this sort of contradictory ball? Help me untangle this contradictory sort of ball of impulses within the speaking archetypes. That right back to the girl boss archetype. Um, because something that's always Driven me mad about this conception in our culture is is a sort of schizophrenic view on sexuality um, that I think you're actually pointing to. You came down on one side of the Madonna whore complex, but the modern equivalent of that is probably the the sort of sexless automaton in the boardroom and OnlyFans, Playgirl outside oh, of it. I see, what right? You're saying. Yeah, and there there's almost this this very like um, desexed. And very uh, unerotic conception of women in the workplace to the point of, you know, if a man puts his hand on your thigh, you've been, you know, horribly assaulted and, mm-hmm. and the company owes you money for your trauma, right? Um, so that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, this extremely aggressive sort of sexuality that does seem to be a part of this girl boss archetype, right? That, that mm-hmm. she has a lot of casual sex, she goes on a lot of like Tinder hookups, um, and, uh, is, is really dedicated to this concept of, of, um, uh, having sexual relationships without kind of the attachment or intimacy. Um, that's, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not, again, like, like you said, I'm not talking about any particular person. I'm just, this, this is part of this, of life, right? And yeah. sometimes it very literally collides, um, where a lot of, the women that, that I've known who sort of fall into the girl boss category that I've worked with, for example, um, when I did have a, a less ideological job, you know, and I did more. Um, a lot of those women even dress very sexually aggressively at work, yeah. right? In in ways that are um, almost daring to, mm. like, it almost seems to me like to be a dare to people around them. Like, oh, you're supposed to treat me as a sexless automaton, but here, look at my cleavage and my legs. Mm. Um, while you do that but i'm wondering how you can untangle for me this just like giant ball of impulses related to uh sort of asexuality almost on the one hand or or de-eroticization and like hyper sexuality and eroticization um on the other hand like what 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 makes
1: sense of that for me gosh (laughs) i wish i could uh let me think about it (laughs) um i don't know what is that I talk about it a lot. I mean, and it is totally schizophrenic. It's like, uh, um, but I suppose what it is, uh, is they're, they're, they're united in that they're both cheap and shoddy imitations of what is understood as sort of a male behavior. Um, the, 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 the all business serious, blah, 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 blah thing. And also like the uh, spread my seed far and wide thing. <laughs> like these are both, it's just like, it's, I don't know. It's, it's schizophrenic because women aren't supposed to act this way in either capacity because I think women naturally at work are interested in people. And, and, well, I mean, I was actually talking with, um, with some, some, some of the guys at NatCon who run a great business and who have a couple of women in the office. <laughs> and we're just talking about how like, no, it's actually like, well, these women, first of all, they have very full lives. And when, what they bring to the, uh, to the workplace is like uniquely female and they, they are feminine and they sort of, they, it, they provide a certain social glue. And uh, peacemaking sort of capabilities that are really um, quite refreshing and, and conducive to success, right? Um, and so, women—you know—women can add things like this to work. Like, uh, I think anybody who's adding what their their true gifts and sort of offering that to other people is doing a good thing. It's when you get into these cheap imitations where you get a more confused outcome, probably. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's probably what both of those things are. It's just cheap, cheap imitations of the worst kind of man.
0: Um, Yeah, you you pointed there to a a contradiction in sort of the diversity thinking, right? Um, Women are interchangeable or identical with men. They're not really adding any kind of anything unique even to the workplace, right? Um, Right. If if they're interchangeable with men, they're not bringing anything different to the table. There's always been that kind of that contradiction, I think, in a certain type of feminism where on the one hand, if women ruled the world, there'd be no war. Um, and, and on the other hand, right, women and men are the same. Um, yes. These things are obviously not compatible. Uh, but how, I, I want to wrap up with this question, you know, how, how did you come to some of these conclusions? I mean, um, did you, like, did you grow up in a traditional family or did you find your way to a lot of these conclusions um, via, you know, sort of observation or poor experience or, you know, how did, yeah. how did you get where you are on a lot of these questions?
1: Well, that's a good question too. <laughs> um, no, I didn't, I wasn't raised in a traditional home. Um, um, I kind of learned the hard way. I, I, I was, I, I think some combination of observation and, and bad experience. Um, I think I've always been, um, uh, just a bit of an, a, a bit of an outsider. I grew up in the South and my parents were uh, Yankees. So, so uh, I, I think I've always been sort of, uh, if I, I, you could say maybe I came to be comfortable in a more observational role, which is probably why I, you know, grew up and became a writer. But um, But yeah, I, I don't know. It was some combination of observing other people and then observing myself and, and also I will say, um, it's not all bad. Like I think my, some of my best ideas and my clearest understanding of what has happened has been through the very redemptive, um, experience of marriage, um, and, and having, you know, a relationship with, uh, uh, with, with a man that was very, that was, uh, that, that is inherently dignified and, and, um, who helps me think things out and <laughs> sort of uh, forces, forces logic. <laughs> this sounds silly as it's coming out of my mouth, but I, I do mean it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. It, it's, there, there are bad experiences that everybody learns from, but, But actually, honestly, like my most informative things, the thing that, things that motivate me now are the fact that I love my life and I, I wish desperately that I could tell my younger self when I was having all, having all those learning experiences that there is a better way. And so, um, yeah, it's just, I I said this on Alex's podcast. It's just too good of news not to share.
0: On that uncharacteristically upbeat note for this podcast, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Helen, Helen, for for joining High Noon today. Um, really highly recommend Helen's writing and her work, her podcast, Girl Boss Interrupted. Um, thanks so much for spending this uh, close to an hour with us today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for
0: having me, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. We have other productions of the Independent Women's Forum, um, such as uh, At the Bar, which is a podcast that I do with a colleague of mine, Jennifer Braceres, We actually have an upcoming episode uh, on this Supreme Court term. We talk about issues at the intersection of law, politics and culture. Um, we also have a podcast called She Thinks, which is more of a uh, daily download into uh um, policy issues. We have a lot of, um, we have a lot of really great and interesting guests over there as well. Um, so if you're looking for, to, to understand a policy issue better or to understand something that's in the news better, um, always a great place to go, she thinks. Uh, but you can also uh, help us out with this podcast, High Noon, by hitting the subscribe button, uh, leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.